Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I'm James Rudd, the digital media editor here at Heart. Today, I have a great conversation with Dr. Van Spol from McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Dr. Van Spol has assembled an excellent team who've written a really good review of HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. We cover concepts in diagnosis, mechanisms of disease, management, and what future research projects might look like. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Van Spool, for joining me today. Maybe before we start, you could introduce yourself for the listeners. Who are you? What do you do? And whereabouts do you work? I am honored to be here, Dr. Rudd. I'm Harriet Vanceball. I'm a cardiologist and scientist at the Population Health Research Institute. The clinical focus of my practice is heart failure. And the research focus of my career is heart failure. I'm funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and uh, run clinical trials to assess the effect of different ways of implementing care to close knowledge treatment gaps in heart failure. I also do disparities research, big data research, and uh, work in digital health technology, all with the goal of improving systems of care and heart failure. Fantastic. What a broad range of, uh, of skills you have there. Uh, but I wanted to get you on the podcast to discuss a recent review that was just published a couple of months ago now uh, in Heart, which is entitled Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction, Recent Concepts in Diagnosis, Mechanisms and Management. And I think for the purpose of the podcast, we might just use the acronym HEFPEF, if that's okay, just rather than uh, saying those words each time we mention it. What was it, Dr. Van Spool, that uh, prompted you to, to write this review? This was uh, an invited review by Heart BMJ. So we pulled together a team and responded to their call. Perfect. And I mean, there's clearly, uh, it's a rapidly evolving field, HEFPEF, mm -hmm. uh, and your review, I think, captures, you know, really up to the minute uh, developments in, in diagnosis, in, in therapy. Um, but maybe before we dive into the details, we, we could start off by defining what we mean by HEFPEF. And um, what's the pathophysiology? Any recent insights? Just give us a sort of broad brush opening of what the disease is and how it affects people and, and what the cause is, as, as much as we know. Sure. HEFPEF is a clinical syndrome of heart failure, signs and symptoms, along with an LV ejection fraction of 50% or greater in the absence of previously reduced ejection fraction. So we're not talking about a recovered ejection fraction, we're talking about a preserved ejection fraction. In this condition, the signs and symptoms of heart failure are accompanied by objective measures of elevated LV filling pressure, either at rest or with exercise, in absence of other underlying etiologies that would explain the elevated filling pressure. So we're not talking about uh, specific loading conditions, valvular regurgitation, congenital heart disease. We're talking about a syndrome that's in absence of other underlying causes of um, the presentation. The pathophysiology is complex. Um, at the tissue level, it includes inflammation, myocardial ischemia, there's abnormal cell signaling and energetics, 
tissue fibrosis, and myocardial hypertrophy. And these manifest as hemodynamic perturbations that include abnormalities in lusotropy, inotropy, and chronotropy. So in this condition, we observe an abnormal pressure volume relationship. If you can visualize the pressure volume loops that we all learned in medical school, these are shifted upward and to the left. Uh, there's a loss of early LV diastolic suction, impaired diastolic reserve, and a reliance on high LA pressure and atrial contractility for LV filling. Um, and of course, this atrial contractility becomes impaired in the setting of atrial fibrillation, which is common in HEFPEF. So there's abnormalities in this early LV diastolic filling. This is accompanied by impairments in systolic or stroke volume reserve. And this is due to an inability to contract the LV to a low end systolic volume. These abnormalities in lusotropy and inotropy are then accompanied by chronotropic incompetence. So uh, inadequate uh, increase in heart rate with exercise. And the combination of these uh, perturbations cause symptoms that are initially experienced during exercise and then ensue to symptoms at rest when most patients present with HEFPEF. What makes this condition complicated is that there are many non-cardiac mechanisms that are involved. These include um, pulmonary conditions, pulmonary hypertension, impaired lung muscle mechanics that cause an increase in RV load and culminate in RV failure. There's abnormal abdominal compartment mechanisms uh, such that venoconstriction uh, results in third spacing and bowel congestion with endotoxin translocation. There's skeletal muscle mechanisms that include impaired metabolism and decreasing exercise tolerance. There are renal mechanisms that include uh, passive congestion, changes in the neurohormonal milieu, abnormal fluid hemostasis, and renal insufficiency. And then there are abnormal ventricular vascular mechanisms um, that impair some of the hemodynamics that we discussed. So a complex interplay of cardiac and non-cardiac abnormalities in the syndrome. On a population level, patients with HEFPEF are more commonly women, more commonly have hypertension, obesity, atrial fibrillation, and some of the non-cardiac comorbidities we've heard about. They also happen to be older in age than patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. So some differences, some commonalities, um, but a challenging syndrome to diagnose because the EF that we're so used to relying on to diagnose heart failure is preserved. And that brings me beautifully onto the next question that I was going to ask you. What is the current approach to diagnosis um, and what are the limitations of the current approach to diagnosis? Right. So um, I discussed the definition of HEFPEF. And 
therein lies the diagnostic uh, criteria. Um, there are two diagnostic algorithms that can facilitate diagnoses. These are the H2F PEF score and the HFA PEF algorithm. And these basically combine clinical characteristics with uh, diagnostic results to make the diagnosis and distinguish HFPEF from other causes of dyspnea. The limitations are that they are somewhat overlapping. They've been um, derived in different populations and patients that might meet criteria using one scoring system may not meet the threshold in the other scoring system, but they're useful at a practical level at identifying patients who are at high risk for HFPEF. And they perform reasonably well when you corroborate them with invasive hemodynamics. Um, important to note that you cannot categorically exclude HFPEF in the setting of low scores. And so uh, there is the role for clinical acumen and more specific investigations to make the diagnosis as these scores can't exclude them. I use the H2F PEF score quite commonly. These give patients a score for a body mass index greater than 30, uh, two or more hypertensive medicines or hypertension history, atrial fibrillation, pulmonary hypertension, and age greater than 60, and echocardiography evidence of elevated LV filling pressures. Um, I find it quite useful uh, to assess patients using this risk score. The mnemonic makes it easy to remember. And is there any role for NT-ProBNP? I noticed that it doesn't form part of that um, scoring system, which is written out in, in Table 1 for those who are reading along. Right. There are certain conditions that are associated with the reduction in NT-ProBNP, um, and those are common in HEF-PEF. HEF-PEF itself is associated with lower NT-ProBNP levels in the setting of decompensation than HEF-REF. And other conditions can um, change the NT-ProBNP level that one might expect. These include atrial fibrillation, obesity, chronic kidney disease, and um, ethnicity. So, you know, it's, it's hard to categorically exclude HEF-PEF on the basis of an NT-ProBNP. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that the levels are lower in HEF-PEF than in HEF-REF. Okay. Useful to follow any given patient along their disease trajectory, however, because for any given patient, the changes in NT-ProBNP are associated with changes in volume or pressure. Got you. Can you talk a little bit about um, HEF-PEF mimickers and why it's important to identify them yeah. at the time of diagnosis. Right, so there are some conditions that present very much like HEF-PEF or clinically present with HEF-PEF. And it is important to diagnose these mimickers because the treatment involves very specific interventions and patients will have a poor prognosis unless the underlying condition is diagnosed. Uh, one of the common conditions we see is cardiac amyloidosis, not only HEF-PEF, but also among patients who have aortic stenosis. 
and uh, mitral valve disease. But, you know, about 15% of patients who receive TAVR, for example, have cardiac amyloidosis. And we're seeing this increasingly commonly in our HEFPEF patients as we assess them for cardiac amyloidosis. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and infiltrative cardiomyopathies can also present with HEFPEF. Cardiac sarcoidosis can present really in any manner, including HEFPEF, also HEFREF and ventricular dysrhythmias. Constrictive pericarditis often presents with shortness of breath and volume overload and require suspicion so that workup is adequate. And then, of course, things like valvular heart disease, uh, coronary artery disease, including microvascular disease, high output heart failure, and toxins can also present with a syndrome of HEFPEF. So need to suspect them and work them up adequately so that interventions can be tailored to the underlying causes. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, can we move on now to talk about management of patients with diagnosed HEFPEF? Uh, you start off uh, this part of the review talking about lifestyle-based therapies. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe a really brief overview of the the main kind of uh, tentpole uh, medications that we're all familiar with uh, from HEFREF and tell us a bit how or at all if they perform within HEFPEF populations? Yes, um, I should say that lifestyle interventions are probably the most underappreciated um, interventions and possibly the most challenging for patients to adhere to. But a majority of patients with HEFPEF are overweight, which brings with it an array of cardiometabolic abnormalities. Um, and weight loss has a beneficial effect on many of these parameters. Weight loss has beneficial effects on hemodynamics. And has not been tested in wide-scale clinical trials, but in a small trial in patients with HEFPEF who were obese, a calorie-restricted diet, either alone or in combination with exercise training, was associated with weight loss, of course, and also an increase in peak oxygen consumption. Together, diet and exercise had additive effects. Exercise therapy, of course, has a wide array of benefits and improves outcomes, not only in HEFPEF, but also in some of the underlying comorbidities that people with HEFPEF have. And meta-analyses of tiny trials have demonstrated that um, exercise therapy can improve your uh, VO2 max improve your six-minute walk distance, and also quality of life scores. So important interventions, tough to adhere to, but there are innovative ways. We know that some digital health technology interventions can improve step count, uh, time spent moving, and also enhance weight loss. So there are ways to achieve the goal of weight loss and better nutrition in patients using some of the technologies that are becoming commonplace now. Fantastic. And what about medical therapies? If you could just briefly touch on the three or four categories that you mentioned in your review and tell us whether they are beneficial or not uh, in HEFPEF. 
So unlike in HEF-REF, where the pillars of guideline-directed medical therapy have reduced cardiovascular or all-cause death, as well as worsening heart failure, the evidence-informed or evidence-based therapies in HEF-PEF have primarily reduced worsening heart failure without putting a dent in either cardiovascular or all-cause death. And these therapies include RAS inhibitors, such as, of course, the MRAs, um, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and ARNIs. Um, interesting that uh, pooled analyses of these classes have revealed a sex treatment LVEF interaction, um, such that the effectiveness of therapies is greater in women than in men. And the threshold of EF at which the therapies are effective is higher in women than in men, likely due to the differences in um, hormonal milieu of women than in men, and also differences in LVEF, what's considered a normal LVEF and in cavity size in women versus men. Of course, in the last couple of years, the big news in HEFPEF has been the efficacy of the SGLT2 inhibitor empagliflozin, the Emperor Preserved trial, which recruited patients with heart failure and importantly, an EF of 40% or greater, showed a reduction in the primary composite endpoint of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure. So it's the only intervention, drug intervention, that's shown a reduction in the primary composite endpoint of the trial. But this benefit too was driven by a reduction in worsening heart failure rather than a significant reduction in death. Um, it's important to note that while we classify heart failure in these three categories of heart failure with reduced EF, mildly reduced EF, and preserved EF, LVEF is a continuum. And we see that the pathophysiology, the comorbidities, response to therapies, demonstrate that we should treat LVEF as a continuum, at least up until an EF of 55%. What we see is that the burden of non-cardiac comorbidities increases as the EF increases, and the proportion of all-cause deaths due to cardiovascular causes decreases as the EF increases. So in addition to the interventions that we discussed, it's important to intervene on these comorbidities and to provide care in an integrated, multidisciplinary manner that our health systems aren't designed to do. We are uh, designed to deliver care in silos based on organ systems. And here is a syndrome in which integrated care is so important because non-cardiac causes are important causes of death and also hospitalization. We should also note that there might be a benefit to addressing the phenotypes in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. There are many knowledge gaps with regards to who would best benefit from the therapies that we have discussed. We could use 
echocardiography, for example, and measurements of longitudinal strain to distinguish between phenotypes that are myocardium driven versus some that might be driven by LA dysfunction or abnormal VA coupling or extra cardiac volume overload. And there's room for clinical trials to test the effect of these phenotypic driven interventions versus our current strategy of offering therapies to everyone that perhaps works best and is most streamlined at the population level but could be tailored to phenotype potentially to increase return on investment, so to speak. And just a couple of questions to finish off, Dr. Van Spall. In your practice, how do you tend to monitor patients when they have a diagnosis of HFPEF? So we see them clinically and really despite all of the advances in diagnostics and biomarkers, we see patients and assess them clinically, relying on symptoms, signs, how they're feeling, what they can do in terms of exercise tolerance, and assessing and managing the non-cardiac component through frequent uh, interactions with the patient are also uh, important strategies to improving outcomes. Certainly in the current era of remote monitoring, um, digital health technologies, they're effective ways, streamlined ways to have contact with patients and tailor their therapies without seeing them face-to-face and relying on bricks on mortar care. And this is another uh, interest of mine. How do we deliver care to patients beyond their regional resources uh, so that patients in rural areas and remote areas have access to the kind of specialty care pathways that we can offer. And finally, uh, the last question I have is, what are the, what are the unanswered questions in HEFPEF? What are the trials that you think uh, we're still missing that you'd like to see done, let's say if money was no object? Right, you know, and, and this is where I was talking about a phenotypic uh, driven approach because HEFPEF is such a heterogeneous condition with a complex interplay of pathophysiologic mechanisms. It is unlikely that one treatment would work for all patients. And I think there is room for trials that are offered to patients based on their phenotype. There are ways that artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithms can discern phenotypes. And so offering specific interventions based on those phenotypes might be a way to tailor therapies to individual patients based on their characteristics. And then how do we deliver care and organize services to integrate uh, the systems required to address all the cardiac and non-cardiac comorbidities of these patients without sending them to eight or 10 different subspecialists. You know, how do we um, organize care, keep people out of the hospital in a way that is cost effective and improves both patient reported outcomes as well as clinical outcomes? These are areas in which clinical trials can answer questions that have yet to be answered. Perfect. I just want to finish there by thanking you very much indeed, Dr. Van Spell, for your amazing expert insights into this condition as i'm sure all practicing cardiologists will attest it's it's very common getting commoner 
and as you say it's a, it, there are lots of subtleties to the diagnostic pathway and then choosing which treatment to use for which patient so thank you so much for your time it was my pleasure thank you so much for making the time to have this discussion with me james i appreciate it 